Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be able to add to the welcome Simon gave at the start of the service. Uh, if you have your Bible, please do uh, open back up to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, as we get our new Advent series underway. Uh, just as you turn there, uh, let's turn to the Lord now in prayer and seek his help as we look at his word together. Father, thank you for the uh, blessing uh, that we have of being able to be here together. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that just as we meditate on the, the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would strengthen our faith wherever we may be experiencing darkness shrouding our wonder. May the light of the world just enter again and fill up and extinguish and drive away all the darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I took the annual pilgrimage to the attic to get the tree and the Christmas lights down and the decorations. Lindsay and Grace took the lead uh, very helpfully in getting everything set up in the old household. And uh, each year we have a, a turning on, switching on of the Christmas lights in our house. I read a passage from the Bible, we have a countdown, and we light them up. And everything was great whenever we hit the lights, but we noticed that there are some lights that are interwoven into this garland that we have that sits on our mantelpiece. And the lights, the little LEDs, were very dim. Whenever we hit all the buttons, everything lit up, but they hardly showed any light at all. There wasn't much life in the batteries of that little garland thing, and so there wasn't much light emitting from the LEDs. So I took another, what feels like an annual pilgrimage to the shop at Christmas to get batteries, and we put them in, and when we hit the switch, those wee LED lights shone brighter than ever. Plenty of life in the batteries, plenty of light from the little light bulbs. This experience with our lights, it kind of stands as a little parable of what I'd like our Advent Sundays to be like at Great Vic over the next four weeks. What do I mean? Well, there's so much at this time of the year that is fun and exciting. The Christmas trees, the lights, the turkey, the stuffing, the cranberry, I love it all. But there's also a lot that can drain and dull the brightness of our wonder, our wonder that focuses on Jesus at the center of Christmas. Christmas busyness, stress, expense, all of that can sometimes eclipse the brightness of our focus on Christ. And so we can actually become a bit more like those dim lights that were on our mantelpiece with respect to our wonder at the incarnation of Christ. And because of this, I want our Sunday messages to be a place where the Lord puts new energy and hope into us through his word. That the word coming to you Sunday by Sunday over the next four weeks in particular would be like you getting new batteries into your soul to brighten your wonder, to brighten your hope, to brighten your joy and your delight in the one at the center 
of everything we want to focus on in Christmas, that is Jesus Christ. And so to help with this, we're going to look at some words from John's gospel. Through this Advent season, we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, the Word who became flesh. And this is a fitting gospel to revisit at this time of the year because John tells us that he wrote this gospel to stir up our faith and to brighten our affection for Jesus. In John 20, 31, John gives us a purpose statement that explains why he wrote this gospel. He says there, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That by believing you may have life in his name. That means that by believing in Christ, you would be bright, full of life, full of hope, not dull, not stressed out, not overwhelmed with Christmas busyness, not like our dim lights, not much in the batteries, and so not much light. Now, we can really see this goal that John has of stirring our affection, our bright hope for Jesus in the rousing way he introduces his gospel in the first five verses. Verse five of John one takes us to the main statement John wants to make in his introduction. And he wants us to read this whole gospel in light of this statement. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the most triumphant, hope-giving, spiritual life-stirring summary statement of what Jesus coming into the world at Christmas is all about. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That is John's triumphant announcement at the head of his gospel, and he wants us to read everything in light of it. Now, you might be here this morning, and you may feel that there is darkness trying to crowd in on you and extinguish your light of life. You may be looking out on the world at the moment and thinking, there's just so much darkness in this world, and it actually pulls you down. You might be wondering, will the darkness eventually extinguish the light? Well, John wants us to know right at the beginning of this gospel, Jesus is our inextinguishable light, and no darkness can ever snuff him out. This morning, as we look at the first five verses, our outline is very, very simple. We're going to focus on verse 5 and ask three questions. Who or what is the light? Second question, what is the darkness referring to? And third, what does it mean that the darkness does not overcome the light? That's where we're going. And if you're taking notes, you can jot that down, and hopefully this will be nice and clear. 
So question one, who or what is the light? The light, verse five, shines in the darkness. Well, we can answer this question, who or what is the light, in three steps by looking at what John says about this light in verses one to four. First step, the light is the word who was with God and who is God. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Two steps to see clearly in these verses so that we'll understand that the light is the Word who was with God and who is God. First, the one named the Word who was with God and who is God in verse 1, let's just be really clear. This refers to Jesus Christ. The Word refers to Jesus Christ. Now, we know this because John says in verse 14, the Word became flesh. This is a reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God's coming into the world and taking on flesh, the birth of Christ, the God-man. Why call him the Word? And why not just say, in the beginning, was Jesus? Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. But the second thing I want to establish here is that it is the Word, Jesus Christ, who is also called the light by John in this introduction. So if you're asking who or what is the light, well, the Word is the light. The Word is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the light. Look down at verse 4. In him that is, in the Word, was life, and the life was the light of man. The Word, the eternal Son of God, has life in Himself, and that living Word is the light of man. All true, soul-saving, soul-satisfying, whole-person, sustaining life comes from the Word. His life gives life, gives light to all. Now, to confirm we're getting this right, that the light refers to Jesus Christ, look down at verses 9 and 10. John, speaking of Jesus, says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So, the light is Jesus Christ. The light is the Word. The Word and the light are expressions John is using to speak of Jesus. So let's come back to our earlier question. Why refer to Jesus as the Word and then as the light? Why not just write, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God? That's a good question to ask. Well, there are two reasons, two main reasons, I think, for John doing this. First, when John starts off there in verse 1 with the words, in the beginning, he is taking us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Back to the beginning before anything was created. John knows 
that the eternal Son of God existed in eternity past before anything was created. He was with God, and he was God. John also knows that the eternal Son of God was not given the name Jesus until he entered into history, into the world. John doesn't want to be anachronistic. That is, to to give Jesus the name Jesus before he was given the name Jesus. He doesn't want us to think of the eternal Son of God necessarily as Jesus because the Son wasn't given the name Jesus until he entered into the world. You shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is the name of the God-man. So, John has to think, what would be an appropriate name for me to give to the eternal Son of God before he came into the world? Before his incarnation. And he settles on this expression, the Word. I'm going to think of the eternal Son who is eternally with the Father. What am I going to call him? I'm going to call him the Word. Now, why the Word? Well, this is kind of our second reason for why John doesn't just say, in the beginning was Jesus. He wants to communicate something profound about the identity of the one who became flesh, so that we will truly understand who he is and not get it wrong. So why the word? Well, there's three things about the son's identity we can take from this expression, the word, that I think helps us to understand why John speaks of the pre-incarnate eternal Son of God as the Word and then the light. First, the Son who is eternally the Son of the Father, He eternally comes forth from the Father. One of the early church fathers, St. Augustine, explains this with a very simple illustration. He says, my words, they're within me. And when I speak, they come forth into a voice. And so, like words move out from a thinker, the eternal word eternally moves outward from the Father. And the key word there is eternally. There was never a time when the Son was not. So there is this eternal moving out from the Father We call it theologically eternal generation. He is the eternal begotten Son. He generates out from the Father eternally. The Son is always the Son of the Father. The Father is always the Father of the Son. So like words move outward from a thinker, the eternal Son is the Word of God. Second reason, perhaps, John is calling the pre-incarnate Christ the Word. Words move out from a thinker for the sake of communication. Light reveals things. God the Father makes Himself known by His divine Word. In fact, we could say our triune God makes Himself known by His divine Word. God speaks in Genesis 1, and through His words, He creates the universe. 
This is one way God has revealed His glory in what He has made. But the ultimate way our triune God makes Himself known is through the eternal Word, His Son. Isn't it interesting in John's Gospel that John bookends this passage, verses 1 to 18, in the beginning was the Word, God's self-revelation, the light. And look at how he ends the introduction in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In Northern Ireland, we'll say sometimes, you know, any word on your mother's health? Any word on what's happening up there at Stormont? And what do we mean by that? We mean, have you any more information? Any revelation of what's happening? Well, Jesus, we could say, is the word on God. So the word communicates something about the fact that of Jesus' identity. He eternally comes from the Father. He is the word from God, the divine communication. He comes out from the Father eternally for the sake of communication, revelation. The third thing we could say, perhaps, is that the word conveys something of the essential relational nature of our God. Words are usually exchanged between people. The word flows out eternally from the Father. The word eternally reveals the Father. And the word exists for communion with the Father. And as that word is directed towards us, he is communication from God to us. So John says, in the beginning was the Word, the eternal communication of God from God, the one who has enjoyed an eternal relationship of communication and communion with the Father, the Word. And he says the Word was with God and the Word was God. This means the Word, the eternal Son, was distinct from God and yet shares the same essence as God. He was in the beginning with God. He is the one whose eternal life is the light and the life of all mankind. Life emanates from the divine Son like light emanates from the Son in the heavens. So John, looking back to before Jesus was given the name Jesus, his eternity before the world began, he chooses the Word, the light, to convey something about the eternal Son's essential identity. So now remember what we're doing here. We're still asking the question, who or what is the light? And this first point I'm establishing is, the light is the Word who was with God and who is God, the eternal Son of God. Secondly, we could say about the light, He is the one through whom all things were made. This is verse 3 of our introduction. John tells us that all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Because the Word, the light, is God, 
He is inseparably involved in the work of creation. In Genesis 1, we read of the Father speaking creation into being through His powerful Word. We know the Son was there with the Father at that point because of what John tells us here in John 1, 1 and 2. The Word was with God. The Word was God. We also know that the Holy Spirit was there in Genesis 1 because in Genesis 1, 2, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Father creates all things through the eternal Word, His eternal Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Each of the persons of the Godhead inseparably involved in the work of creation. So the light in John 1.5 is the one through whom all things were made. The divine Word who took on flesh, who made all things new, this eternal word, this light also made you. Here is how we can think of Jesus Christ as the creator. Because John tells us in verse 3 that without him was not anything made that was made. Anything in the category of made. Now that's everything that's not God. Everything in the category of made. None of it was made apart from the eternal word, the light, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That includes you. John wants us to understand this incarnate God-man that I'm going to be writing about in my gospel. He is the creator of all things. We owe our existence to Jesus Christ, to the Father, and to the Holy Spirit. Like a potter shapes clay, our God shapes our life. But, but you see, the potter, he gets the clay from somewhere, but God makes out of nothing. He, the light, is the one through whom all things were made. So the, who is the light? The word who was with God and the word who is God. He is the one through whom all things were made. Thirdly, then we can say the light is the source of life for all humanity. This is what John says in verse four. In him was life and the life was the light of man. Now, I've told this story before uh, about a little space lander that was landed on a comet a number of years back. NASA had this great ambition, you know, if we could land a little lander, like a little robotic device, onto a comet, it could draw samples from the comet, and I don't know why they always say this, help us to figure out how the universe began. But this was the goal of NASA, to try and draw stuff from this comet, to try and figure out how the world began. And this little lander was called Philae, and it was personified in the press. They, they, they said things like, oh, go little lander uh, on your mission, Godspeed, and all this sort of thing. And the mission was going fairly well. Um, there was this 
robotic device or whatever, this little spaceship orbiting the comet, and then the little lander would be dropped down from that thing in orbit and land on the comet. And it was all going well until the little lander's booster jets didn't fire just before it was supposed to land. So it's supposed to drop down and and then have a nice soft landing. But that didn't fire. So the wee thing crash landed into the comet and it rolled and bounced until it landed in the shadow of this big crevice, this big cliff. And this little thing was powered by solar power. And so the scientists were working like the billy-o to try and see how much information can we get from this thing before it dies. And then, of course, eventually, after a few readings came, the wee thing uh, fell asleep. And people said, rest well, little lander. But the scientists had hope because they realized that every now and again, when this comet goes flying around its orbit around the sun, it might, it might go around in such a way that the sun actually gets onto it. And when the solar light hits those little solar panels, the wee thing might wake up again. And in fact, it did happen once. There was a moment where suddenly they were like, Feli's awake! That was the name of it. And, and they started to try and get readings, but it didn't give anything, and eventually it died, and the mission was ended. I think that's probably the best illustration I can think of for what John means when he speaks of in Jesus there's life, and that life is the light that gives life to all mankind. You see, in him is life. And all of our life derives from him. Jesus' life is light, John says. And as light, it gives life to all. All natural life derives from him, from the word, and all spiritual life derives from him. Use that illustration of the solar power bringing life to how you became a Christian. It's a lovely illustration of conversion. What happened when God shone new creation light into your dead, dark heart, and suddenly where you were dead, life came? The light is the source of all natural life for humanity. He is the source of all spiritual life for humanity. And later on in John's gospel, John 15, John uses a beautiful illustration of how our life is dependent on the life of Christ with the illustration of the vine and the branches. Just like a branch is plugged into the tree and all that life-giving system, so when we are united to Christ, plugged into Christ, all the benefits of the saving life of Christ flow into us as the Spirit flows into every part of our being. But what did Jesus say? Unbelievers are like or those that don't abide in Christ, like branches that that are broken off, and they don't have the saving life of God flowing through them, and so they wither up and die, and then they're all gathered up and they're thrown into the fire. A very solemn warning that Jesus gives to those who are not by faith in Christ. So, we're still answering this first question, who or what is the light? The light is the Word who was with God and who is God. The light is the one through whom all things were made, and the light is the source of life for all humanity. 
Now, just before we answer, and this will be more brief, my second and third quest, uh, questions, let's just think of a few implications here. Let's just ask, are we thinking rightly about the identity of the baby in the manger? Let's be clear. He, the God-man, Jesus Christ, he did not begin to exist when he was born into the world. He came into the world from heaven to give life to the world. And the way he came was through taking on flesh, being born as a human. So that's who the light is, Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the light of the world. But more briefly, secondly, John says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. What is the darkness? What does that signify? Well, throughout John's gospel, John contrasts light and the hope and life that are found in Jesus with darkness, which represents sin, fallenness, and evil in the world. Darkness in John's gospel and his letters, his writings, it is not just an absence of light, but it is the positive presence of evil in the world and in the human heart. Let me just give you a sample of four ways John does this and make some comments along the way. In John 3.19, we read, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Darkness here in John 3.19 speaks of life lived without God, life lived against God. John says, by nature, we love the darkness and prefer it to the light. That's a profound statement on who we are naturally. Then second, John 8.12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Walking in darkness here signifies sin, living life doing your own thing without regard for God. Third example, John 12, 35, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Darkness here is not knowing God's will, having no moral vision for your life. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul annotates essentially what's going on here when he says that the prince of darkness, Satan, the god of this dark age, blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So darkness is spiritual blindness in John's gospel. Then fourthly, John 12, 46, Jesus says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Darkness here is the sphere you live in if you're not in Christ by faith. If you're an unbeliever, Jesus says you're a person in darkness. But Jesus said, whoever believes in me, they don't remain in the darkness. Believing in Jesus takes you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. So in John 1, 5, when we read, the light shines in the darkness... 
John means the eternal word, the light, stepped down out of the realm of heaven into the darkness of this fallen world. He came to our place. He entered our darkness. He took on our flesh. More than that, he would also take on our darkness in a unique way through his death on the cross. And how would God choose to illustrate what was going on when Jesus was on the cross? Darkness falls as he bears sin. And I think this imagery that John uses right at the start of his gospel that begins this sustained contrast between darkness and light, I think it is very, very powerful. Just reflect on it with me for a moment. Think of Jesus, the baby in the manger, eternal God bearing, taking on flesh. The baby in the manger, Christmas, was the entrance of light into the world plunged into darkness by Adam. It was the entrance of light into our fallen nature that had been plunged into darkness by Adam. This baby was a bright light in a dark, fallen world. Is it any wonder those who gathered round him worshipped him, understanding his identity? They worshipped him. I have a friend who has one of those railway sets up in his attic. You know, the whole, the whole 10 yards, you know, the whole miniature world. It's like he's given his life to this railway thing. He took me up once to the loft initially um, to see it. And, and when, before he switched the lights on, you could just see, you know, you can imagine a loft in darkness, wee rays of light coming from around about. But, but pretty much the whole thing was in darkness that I couldn't really see that miniature world that this guy escaped into. And then when he flipped on the switch, not only did it turn lights on in his loft, it turned all the wee miniature lights in his little miniature world on. And when I think about that, I think, that's Christmas. The world, the lights were off, darkness. And the baby entering in was the switching on of light to flood the darkness with light. It's the dawning of an inextinguishable light. That's Christmas. The dawning of an inextinguishable light for the world. No wonder the hymn writers have done all they can with words to express the hope of this moment. Just, oh, holy night, for example. I love that verse. It just says, a thrill of hope. It's a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. A new morning with the birth of Christ. So that's what the darkness means throughout John's gospel. Sin, fallenness, the world in its spiritual blindness. And so then, thirdly and finally, we have to ask the question, what does it mean that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it? Well, this is John's statement of Jesus, the light of the world's triumph over the darkness through his powerful life, death, and resurrection. This is Christmas in a verse. This is the gospel in a verse. This is like dense chocolate brownies, rich with gospel goodness. There's probably two layers of meaning I think we're to see in verse 5. First, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. 
This is a summary of what John is going to document in his theological biography of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's what we're getting in this gospel. You want a subtitle, The Life of Jesus? The light has shone in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. This will be the record, John says, of the light stepping into the darkness. Read every account in light of this verse. Think all his teaching, light shining in darkness. His delivering people from demons, light shining in darkness. All his teaching, his coming to the woman at the well in Samaria, light shining in the darkness. His healing of the blind man, raising of Lazarus, journey to the cross, death in the garden tomb, the women coming at dawn and meeting the risen Christ. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. All through the life of Christ, darkness sought to smother and extinguish him. But Satan's effort to snuff out Christ was like a child trying to blow out one of those trick candles. Have you ever seen it? The trick candles, the wee child will just go, and it'll go out, but then a few seconds later, what happens? Comes back to life again. And the wee child can blow and blow and blow all at once, but that trick candle keeps coming back to life again. Satan tried to blow and blow and blow, but the light kept coming back again, even through death. Satan must have thought the final death blow. And Jesus comes back again. So I think that's something of what we're to see in John 1.5. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Get that framed in your mind now as you read my gospel. But here's a second, of layer, second layer of meaning, which I think is even more prominent than the first. And this stirs up our Christmas hope today. And tomorrow as you go back to work or you face your own Christmas stress. Here's what I want you to do as you read through verse 5 again. Pay careful attention to the tenses. John doesn't say the light shone in the darkness. That's kind of what you'd expect. He says the light shines in the darkness. Present active tense. Now, John was writing after the resurrection, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And in the present, John says, the light shines in the darkness. Now, he's shining as the bright light in our darkness today. The darkness of our grief. Christ shines as our ray of light into the darkness of our depression or the darkness of our anxiety, or the darkness of our loneliness, into the darkness of our stress, or the burdens that we're carrying. Tomorrow, as you go into the work, Christ, the light of the world, dwells in you, and he walks into the darkness with you. He says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life within them. And in all the ways this fallen world tries to exert its darkness into your life, as Satan tries to snuff out the light that is in you, Jesus, the light of the world, burns on as a bright light of hope and life in your life. The life of Christ that is light in you can never be snuffed out by the world, the flesh, or the devil. Now, this takes us back to what we were saying last week when we saw that vision of the glory of Christ from Revelation chapter 1. Whatever darkness is in front of you this week, 
or however you're feeling inwardly in these dark nights, here's the reality. You can say, for this, I have Christ. For this anxiety, I have Christ. For this grief, I have Christ. For this blow and this knock that I've taken, for this, I have Christ. You see, the darkness might try to overwhelm you, to snuff out your joy in the Lord, even to extinguish your faith. But Christ can't be extinguished because His light never goes out. I think this gives us assurance. I think it really helps me. It really helps me so much to know the saving life and light of Christ within me cannot be snuffed out by the world, the flesh, or the devil. No matter how dark this world gets, nothing can put out the light of Christ. But this leads us to take things a step further. And with this I finish. The light of Christ shines today. The light shines in the darkness today in all the evangelism and cross-cultural mission of the church. The light shines through the lampstands of the local churches across our land. Think of local churches this morning, little beacons of light in a dark world, lighting up the darkness. In Belfast, Armagh, Calvin, Black Rock, Passage West, go outward in a sort of concentric circle, or say let's go eastward, France, Holland, Spain, Portugal. Think of local churches shining as beacons of light into the darkness today. In Turkey, in the Middle East, in the Arabian Peninsula, India, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Australia, Chile, Brazil, Mexico, Paraguay, North America, Canada, Iceland. The light expands, shines out today, and the darkness of Satan Demons, the kingdom of darkness, is utterly impotent to stop it or to put it out. Why? No matter how dark it might seem, the light of Christ will never go out from the church. Christ dwells in his temple and he's not going anywhere. The light of the world shines. He will not be put out. Or as Jesus said, I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so John says, right at the head of his gospel, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He said that in the, in the first century. We're still saying it in the 21st century. And the church will say this in every age. And when Christ comes, we will say this in eternity. Because in the new heavens and new earth, one of the features John mentions is what? There will be no more night darkness. The darkness will have faded, and we will dwell forever in the fullness of the glory of the light of the world. This is Christmas hope. Jesus, the triumphant inextinguishable light shines in the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this powerful, triumphant, gospel announcement right at the beginning of John's gospel. 
Thank you, Father, that the light of Christ has shone into our lives. Thank you, Father, for how we remember once we were dead, and now in Christ we are alive. The light and life of Christ gives light and life to us. But Lord, there may be some here this morning that are still in darkness. And Jesus said, whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So I pray, Lord, that even just now in this moment, your divine and supernatural light would be shining bright into the darkness, any dark areas in our own lives, any darkness of unbelief. Shine in the darkness, sovereign Lord, bring light and life. And as we respond now at the beginning of another month, at the beginning of the Advent season, and share in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup together, and we remember those hours of darkness on the cross, and then that new dawn when Jesus stood forth from the grave, victorious over all darkness. I just pray that, Lord, you would put in those new spiritual batteries, so to speak, and make our hope, our delight, our life in Christ, make it shine all the brighter. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to respond uh, this morning by having communion together. And if you know and love the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you're a member in good standing with your local church, you're welcome to share in that meal with us. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're not able to take communion this morning, we're so glad you're here. And I would really encourage you to just take this as a moment to think, what's holding you back from coming to hope in Jesus as the light and life in your own life? Maybe you were intending to take communion. You didn't realize that this was how we do it. There's some bread and cups still at the back there. If you're intending to share communion and you didn't pick up the elements on the way in, as we sing our next song, just nip to the back, get what you need, so that after we're ready to just settle and really ponder the glory of Christ and to have communion with the risen Christ in this time together. To prepare our hearts for that, we'll stand and sing how deep the Father's love for us. Let's ponder this wonderful love. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>